Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Welcome back to another episode of 2020 Vision, the United States Study Center's weekly look at the race for the White House in the 2020 US presidential election. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and this week we're talking Tulsi Gabbard, Trump's trans military ban, and women at war. Joining me is Professor Megan McKenzie, the author of Beyond the Band of Brothers, The US Military and the Myth That Women Can't Fight. Megan is a member of the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and an honorary associate at the United States Study Centre. Let's kick off with a refresher on Tulsi Gabbard, an Iraq War veteran and a congresswoman from Hawaii who's seeking the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. It's been a rocky start to her campaign with criticism of Gabbard from within her own party on a series of issues, including a visit to Syria and a history of opposition to gay rights. Let's have a listen. Well, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has an unlikely defender, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. At some personal risk, the Hawaii Democrat recently made a secret seven-day trip to Syria and Lebanon where she met Assad. When she came back, she denounced the previous administration's efforts to depose Assad as both illegal and harmful to the Syrian people and American interests. I just want to make a correction. I'm not a defender of Assad. I didn't go to Syria to meet with Assad. It was not even part of the plan initially. I believe that if we profess to care for the Syrian people, if we want to end the suffering for them, we have to be willing to meet with whomever we need to uh, in order to accomplish that. At age 21, Gabbard became the youngest person elected to Hawaii state legislature, and that's where she publicly opposed same-sex marriage and civil unions. In 2012, Gabbard renounced those views, saying she had changed her mind after serving in the Iraq war. Now she's taking heed over some of her past comments that she made on same-sex marriage and the LGBTQ community. Former governor and DNC chair Howard Dean said you're not qualified. Former Senator Claire McCaskill called you Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's bestie. What do you make of all this criticism from Democrats? I look forward to debating the issues. Uh, people who are simply interested in name-calling uh, don't appear to be able to debate the substance of whatever issue they may uh, disagree on. I'm focused on the issues. I'm focused on how I can best offer to be of service to the American people and bring about solutions that will positively impact their lives. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, military service has long been considered a positive for men running for political office. Do you think that extends to female candidates like Gabbard? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I do think that there's some evidence. So there's actually interesting research happening here at the University of Sydney. We have a PhD student, Sertan Saral, um, looking at how uh, female candidates use veteran narratives in their campaigning. Mm -hmm. 
And there's evidence, of course, that they use it. And Telsey Gabbard's a perfect example. She talks about her um, service a lot, uh, like many other veterans. Um, what the initial research shows is that women have to use that narrative a little bit differently and that it has different purchase for them. So um, it might buy them more um, acceptance or legitimacy, in, especially in terms of national defense. Right. But it may still not give them as much purchase as it does for male candidates. Okay. Um, Gabbard's campaign has had not a very smooth run so far. A lot of that is down to a, a controversial trip she made to Syria in 2016, where she met uh, President Bashar al-Assad. Um, the late Senator John McCain, another war veteran, um, was highly critical of that meeting for legitimising an accused war criminal. Do you think Gabbard will run into any problems sort of, uh, sort of running on her military record given that meeting? Yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it, even if she hadn't been a veteran, yeah. I think her campaign is just full of so many ca- contradictions, and Syria is just one of many. And I think her visit um, is at odds. And even the way she sort of tries to justify that visit is sort of saying, oh, well, if we want to reduce war and end suffering, we need to meet with whoever we need to. Uh, But then if you actually look at um, the way that she sort of conflates anti-Assad rebels with al-Qaeda, I think it sort of actually undermines her legitimacy legitimacy in terms of national defense. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of similar to other stances that she's had, right? Her her, um, anti-LGBTQ statements and her sort of how that seems at odds with this overarching aloha. You know, she's always talking about (laughs) her own party. But, you know, it's actually just quite compelling when you listen to her talk about her her stance in Aloha and how she has this real intense love and she's driven by love and acceptance of others, which is completely at odds with her previous anti-LGBTQ stance, her seeming anti-Islam um, stance. And so I think, um, you, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, I think either she just has a very different perspective and, and, and I think has um, – policies that reflect her own personal integrity and she doesn't care about the party yeah. or she's an incredibly different kind of politician that's that's quite savvy and I, I don't know it's hard to know with her but I find myself watching interviews and feeling like wow she's very compelling yeah. and then actually when you get to the nitty degree of the policy it's so incompatible <laughs> um, your book um, Beyond the Band of Brothers looked at uh, the combat exclusion of women in the US military um, do you see a lot of similarities between the armed forces and, and politics particularly this myth that that women are not suited to particular careers or sort of roles Yes, I think there's a direct kind of comparison for um, women trying to run for political office and women in other male-dominated spheres. And and the military is a kind of great example. And in fact, the military might be one of the best ways to look at the challenges that women face in male-dominated workplaces. So I think women um, in the military face this double bind. So they have to bring something different to the table. Um, So in the military, we see them as providing sort of the softer side of things and being better at counterinsurgency and and, um, questioning women, for example. But then they also have to be equal. They're expected to meet the same physical standards and to um, not be different. Uh, And so that places this double bind that feminists have talked about. And and I think that applies to women running for public office. They're expected to be equal to men and to have all of these qualities, but also to be different. And that's such a razor thin. And you see that. I think you probably saw it come through um, politically uh, the most clearly with Clinton, who sort of couldn't quite walk that edge of being equal and being masculine enough, but but being feminine enough. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, Dr. Rebecca Sheen was on the podcast a few weeks ago and spoke a little bit about the role September 11 and the um, subsequent conflicts in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan had in changing perceptions of women at war. Um, is that your view as well, that, that this was a, a significant turning point in, in this argument over women's ability to fight? Well, I think some attitudes have changed somewhat. Right. But I think the overarching narrative about what women and men do in war hasn't changed dramatically. So I think especially if you look at popular culture representations of war, it's still very dominated by particular masculine narratives. Um, I think one of the things that has changed is this constant discussion around physical standards in women has yeah. started to be um, dispelled. I think women getting through ranger school has really helped that, where you see you saw the first women graduate from ranger school, and you've seen subsequent women. I think there's 13 now that have graduated. So in some ways, there's objective measures to show that women actually can do quite physically demanding um, uh, uh, roles in the military. Mm -hmm. So that's changed. But I think the overarching um, perception of where women should be uh, has only changed slightly. Okay. Um, you talk in your book about something called the band of brothers myth, um, this idea that patriotism, male courage, and a, a male-only bond has been embraced by both the military and society more broadly. How do women overcome something like that, which is, as you say, sort of become so deeply ingrained? Well, the interesting thing about the Band of Brothers myth that I found out through my research, so I've interviewed some some women who are in infantry roles, is they don't always want to overcome that Band of Brother myth. Oh, they okay. sometimes just want to be part of it. They right. want, they, you know, that Band of Brother myth is so enticing that there's this mysterious bond between soldiers that helps them to overcome the enemy, and um, it's something indescribable, and it's sort of the, the myth of many m movies, right? And so some women I speak to just want in. They just want to be accepted. They love that idea, and they embrace it, whereas other women um, acknowledge that that's exclusionary right. and leads to things like sexual harassment or can lead to very exclusionary behaviours. As part of your research, you've been tracking the first cohort of women to integrate into combat roles uh, since the ban was lifted in 2013. What have you found so far about their experiences? Yeah, so I've, uh, with two other researchers, um, been interviewing the first women in, in those roles. And so we've done three years of interviews. So the same co cohort of 21 women, we've interviewed them annually for three years and we're hoping to track them for 10 years oh, wow, to okay. see what's it like for these first women? Yeah. How did their experiences change? Is it what they thought it was going to be? And we do find this sort of equal difference double bind for a lot of the women. So they're, they sort of hope that once they prove that they could meet the standards, they'd be accepted. Um, and for many of them, that's not the case. So they meet the standards, they're as good as their male counterparts, but there's still these questions of their legitimacy or there's these um, double expectations of them to bring something different or to be a different kind of leader. Right. And so you see them trying also socially trying to be cool and fit in with the men and take a... Um, you know, laugh at funny jokes or laugh at sexist jokes, but not be too cool and not to give the wrong impression and constantly trying to make sure that the men don't think that they're interested in them. So there's this constant fine line that they seem to be walking. And many of them are succeeding, don't get me wrong, but some of them are really struggling, I think, to walk that line and to feel successful in those roles. Okay. Um, arguably, one of the most controversial policy decisions uh, made by President Trump during his first term has been the ban on transgender Americans from serving in the military. Uh, before we go into detail of that decision, let's hear some of the reaction to it. 
Today, a president who never served is attacking thousands of heroes who do. I came via Twitter this morning, uh, the president tweeting, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow dot 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 transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. Thank you? Wow. No one takes away civil rights as politely as Donald Trump. There's rarely been a time where we needed the protection of our incredible military more than right now. Obviously, it's a very difficult decision. It's not a simple one, uh, but the president feels that it's the best one for the military. It's the latest effort by Donald Trump and Mike Pence to undo our progress and to drag LGBTQ people back into the closet. Megan, the US Supreme Court has, for the first time, um, sort of cleared the way for the Trump administration to start enacting this ban. Was this something that the US military had been actively seeking, do you think? No, it definitely wasn't. And in fact, I think there's a, a widespread misperception, and it was the same for women in combat, that um, there is this perception that the military is very conservative. Uh, but at the time when um, the combat ban for women was removed, there was actually greater support for that within the military than outside. And there was no push for a trans ban within the military itself. And in fact, when Obama announced that policy, it really sort of was widely embraced, yeah. uh, particularly by LGBTQ communities. Um, and so this isn't something that's coming from internal. I think the only resistance internally. So I did some interviews with uh, military leaders in that imp uh, implementation phase. Right. So when the policy had been um, changed by Obama and before Trump was elected. Yep. And there's still a lot of so there still was a lot of confusion about how that was going to be implemented and whether the existing policy would work for some transgender individuals. What drove President Trump to make this a priority issue so early in his presidency, do you think? If it's not coming from the military, where where did this idea come from? Why, why the sense of urgency? I mean, I think where a lot of his ideas come <laughs> from, I think sort of one to reverse an Obama policy and, right. and something I think that Obama really saw as one of his legacy policies mm -hmm. and also to appeal to his base. Right. I think that it really appeals to a conservative base. It also is a great talking point, sort of, you know, make America's military great again, as if this is somehow, um, you know, could somehow be part of that. There, there was talk at the time, I, I recall, about one that, that, that Trump had perhaps met with members of the faith-based communities, and this was an issue that was raised by them. Um, and also um, this idea that there was a lot of money being spent on gender reassignment surgery. Do you think that was had somehow come into sort of you see his thinking when he was making this decision? So I I think meeting with conservatives definitely. Yep. I think there's often this sort of random, eight, you know, eight billion, eight, you know, different kinds of millions that are pointed out as as the cost of gender reassignment surgery for the number. This random calculation based yep. on number of service members and number of potential service um, surgeries, which is completely, you know, the any number you read is just yep. sort of, yeah, it, 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 yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah. 
Um, the truth is that many service members who are transgender don't require surgery, yeah. don't seek surgery. Uh, and also that the amount of money spent to reassign or to re to to lose all these um, service members would be far greater than any medical costs um, that are associated with gender affirming um, procedures. I also remember seeing a stat about um, the amount of money the military spent on Viagra, for example, as yeah. compared to something like gender yeah. reassignment, which is just you know um, yeah. millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, there's an estimated ten thousand transgender individuals on active duty or in reserve forces in the United. States. How do you see this playing out now? Are they are they realistically going to go in and identify these people and force them to leave? And could this be an issue going into the 2020 presidential election? So it's difficult to know how it'll play out in the 2020 election because I think Trump is the only politician right now who really wants to talk about this issue. Yes, it doesn't yeah. seem like any of the other candidates are interested in, in making it part of their platform. I mean, the real problem, I think, is for service members right now who have come out uh, as a result of Obama lifting the policy and have started making uh, you know, have started transitioning or have been open about um, about gender reassignment or are now living as their preferred gender. And for those uh, service members, I wouldn't put it past a Trump Trump administration to actually, you know, um, embrace the full um uh, interpretation of this policy, which right. means to to kick out everyone who's transgender, which would be devastating. Yeah. I think um, it's not possible for service members who have all who have already um, identified uh, with their preferred gender to sort of roll that back. Yep. And so it puts a large number of service members in a hugely anxiety-inducing um, position right now, regardless yeah. of whether it's art- you know interpreted. F- interpreted fully or, or not. I think it's yeah, These are people are being deployed overseas that are yeah. sort of fighting for their country and another. Yeah, and I think what people world. forget in the whole debate is that before, before Obama even reversed this policy, there were, you know, thousands of uh, transgender service members um, openly um, serving. Yeah. And, and there's so much room for the commanders to allow for service members to... to um, uh, serve under their preferred gender identity, yeah. and and there has been no evidence that that um, limits their ability to serve. Uh, and so, really, it's actually just a way of Trump appealing to his base, you know, drumming up um, anti-trans rhetoric. Yeah, Megan, we'll have to leave things there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, and if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. Thanks to Babamara Brass Band, Chad Crouch, Lobo Loco and Achua for their musical contributions this week and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.